what we do here is go back, 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 back. And welcome in to episode 87 of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. My name is David Statman, and as always, I am joined by my good friend Angelo Inglisa as we rewatch, relive, and remember a different wrestling pay-per-view every single week. And this week, we have our second consecutive WCW Uncensored pay-per-view. Sometimes the randomizer just serves us up some shit. I still can't uh, believe we got back-to-back uncensored. Yeah, you know, the really, when you consider they only did, like, five of those, uh, the odds on that that we would get two in a row are very remote. But that is what happened. We had WCW Uncensored 2000 last time out a couple weeks ago because we were out last week. Uh, and that was just complete steaming pile of dog shit. I mean, it was unwatchable. Bad. Completely completely unwatchable in all of the worst ways a wrestling show can be unwatchable. This one, WCW Uncensored 1998, by comparison, I mean, was was it was night and day. Like, there was actually some wrestling on it that was good. And yes, we have a main event that is among the worst matches that we have ever had on this show with, like, and, like, quite possibly, like, the single worst ending to a pay-per-view I've ever seen. Or It's up there. Maybe exaggerating, but it is up there. I mean, you're talking about, like, up there with the fucking uh, Seth Rollins, the Fiend, Hell in a Cell match style shit. I mean, for for shows we've done, for shows we've done, this is easily top five. I'd say top three. You could almost argue two after Heroes of Wrestling. I don't think Heroes of Wrestling will ever be topped. But no, it will not. This uh, I, this is up there in terms of just stupid, nonsensical bullshit that was a bore. I wish this was censored. Yes, the, the, the ending of the show is fucking bad. But most of the rest of it, or a lot of the rest of it, is actually pretty watchable. There are some matches that I really liked. Uh, some some cool some cool matches, some cool matchups. Uh, we get, uh, like, very, very early uh, Scott Steiner heel turn where he's starting to develop the Big Papa Pump character. One of the first times he ever really flashed his peaks on WCW television. Uh, some fun stuff on the show. I mean, overall, it's it's not a complete waste, which is a very big improvement over last time. Oh, yeah. The first two hours and ten minutes is a joy for the most part. And if you look at the relative, car- A relative joy when you're talking about WCW, I think you have to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, even re- like the title matches were all good. Like I generally thought the uh, like the World Television Championship, the Cruiserweight Championship, U.S. Heavyweight. And the World Heavyweight, like, all those title matches were, fin- like, good to fantastic. Um, the fillers, uh, you know, if you look at the fillers, too, like, there's big names there at the very least. Like, you look at this card, and it's kind of ridiculous how stacked this card is for just an uncensored. Like, Booker Eddie, you have Conan, you have Malenko Jericho, you have Nash, you have The Giant, you have Hall, you have, like, oh, you have all these names on the undercard. It's kind of ridiculous. No yeah. tag team matches, but... Like, this isn't a card where I was really wanting for a tag match. This was actually a lot of good singles matches with a single triple threat. And it's it was a good time there. And then it's just they ruin it with the uh, main event, which is something that, uh, you know, a lot of current era WWE product does. Like, a lot of times what I find is that 
when the undercard looks suspicious on a WWE card, they almost always overachieve what you think it's going to be. Like, look at Hell in a Cell, for example. You look at those matches, you're like, oh, this card looks like crap. And then, like, everything underneath the Cody-Seth match was, pre- like, was pretty good. And then, obviously, you have a main event that's super memorable for Hell in a Cell. But this one, not even, like, Cody with one peck was better than both Hogan and Savage in this entire match. Yeah, uh... It's it's a really bad main event, but yeah, like they they do they do give you what you would want to see, you know, in WWE at the time. I mean, like in terms of the guys, they loaded up. They have everybody that if you were a fan of WCW at the time, this is like right before the rise of Goldberg really kind of started to pop off. He was in the company by this point, but hadn't really like gotten the big main event push yet like right like they give you basically every name you could want to see here basically everybody is in action um and yeah you get some good matches so it's really you know for for wcw which like is 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 fondly remembered by a lot of people like the 96 through 98 era but like a lot of it even at its best was kind of trash uh this is a pretty good outing for them to be honest with you, this is a pretty good outing for them, even with a, a dog shit main event. That is and, 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 and like an ending that would make me want to, like, get my money back as a fan. Insulting. Yeah. But at the end of the day, yeah, it could could be a hell of a lot worse. So uh, take that home with you. But sounds like we're ready to remember some guys right let yeah. us remember the guys who i believe i don't think we have a single new appearance on here though but let's remember I, the guys yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure we don't because again this is all like there's no one really crazy or obscure on here it's wcw loading it up with their names you know what i mean and that's that's not a bad thing so it is march 15th 1998 we are in mobile alabama the Mobile Civic Center. We have a crowd of 7,475 people here for WCW Uncensored 1998. For, in the main event, the Mega Powers. God damn it, they're exploding again. <laughs> I forgot why about do, this. Why do these Mega Powers keep exploding? <laughs> what is wrong here? It is Hogan and Savage, uh, Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage, 10 years or so. After they main evented WrestleMania, uh, they are main eventing WCW Uncensored 1998 in a steel cage, basically tussling over who is going to be the top dog in the NWO. As the NWO angle, we are at the point now where it has stretched on for like two full years and everybody's in the NWO and it's just starting to get a little out of hand, right? We're, we're sort of at this point. It just kind of went on forever. It's like those leftovers uh, you leave in the fridge and you're just like, yeah, this is a great meal to heat up and it's just throw it in the microwave. It's starting to get that smell. Yeah, it's it's definitely getting that smell. It is like a two-month-old you know, lasagna at this point. Um, but it's, you know, it's Hogan, so he's going to be on top. He is main eventing over the WCW world title, which is... Uh, Sting is defending tonight as well. So we have on the call classic uh, combo of Tony Schiavone, the professor, Mike today, and Bobby the Brain Heenan. And we start off with 
a pretty good-looking TV title match. It is Booker T defending against Eddie Guerrero. Eddie Guerrero accompanied to the ring by uh, his very uh, pissed-off nephew, Chavo Guerrero. It always, you know, it's always, like... It blows my mind when I realized that like Chavo and Eddie were and, like Eddie was Chavo's uncle, even though they were like the same age. I just always <laughs> found that really funny because uh, like you, you're just like, you know, they were brothers, right? No, he's his fucking uncle. Uh, just always found that funny. Um, they got the storyline going on where uh, Eddie's kind of, you know, Eddie, Eddie was Eddie's being kind of a shit heel as he was through a lot of uh, WCW and Chavo is annoyed with him he wants him to better respect the guerrero name the proud guerrero name they hadn't seen eye to eye but uh they had had a match the week before on wcw thunder where eddie had beaten him and by the stipulation of the match chavo has to now accompany him to the ring uh for his match with booker t booker t uh coming out wearing the the like the jerry rice style like nose strip (laughs) that you never see people wear anymore um, Booker starts off very hot in this match. Uh, it's a pretty solid opener. Uh, Booker starts out hot. He has a spinning side slam. Uh, clotheslines Eddie to the floor. You have Eddie and Chavo arguing at ringside at the beginning of this match. Um, Booker hits a big power slam, body slams him on the ramp. I, I know, Angelo, you love a good gorilla press slam. He oh, yeah, I do. One where he holds him up for like a long time and then dumps him. Um, he goes up top for the Harlem hangover, but Eddie gets up and drop kicks the leg and uh, gets heat for a little bit, uh, hits a superplex at one point. Booker comes back with his big thrust kick for a uh, first near fall of the match, goes for the scissor kick, but Eddie is able to again counter it by drop kicking leg, works over that leg for a lot of his heat, um, hits a... Uh, Slingshot, uh, Senton Atomico, then uh, goes up. I've never really seen this one before where he does like the flying headbutt to the knee, like on the floor, mm. where he's like Booker is like standing up on the floor. And then Eddie climbs up to the top rope and dives off the top rope to the outside and does a diving headbutt to his knee while he's standing up. That was really weird. And I had never seen that before, I'm pretty sure. Uh, very interesting. Um, Booker comes back, fucking spinneroony on him, hits the scissor kick, hits a big straight up and down Ron Simmons style spine buster, goes up for the Harlem hangover. Eddie ducks out of the way. Um, I, I I hated this part because like Booker's been like uh, had his leg work. It's like the classic like Booker has his leg worked over the entire match. And yep. then it's like really fine. Like he's just not selling it anymore. Um, yeah. And then he uh, goes up. And he, uh, the finish of the match, he gets a missile drop kick. Booker uh, pins Eddie off a missile drop kick and wins the match in 11 minutes and eight seconds. Uh, they flash over to Chavo, who's smirking a little bit. You know, he's, he's he didn't want to see Eddie win this. You know, Eddie, who's being a heel, be rewarded for being a fucking asshole. And then Eddie comes over and he's like, "Hey, man, why are you smiling? Where, you know, <laughs> you don't want me to win? What's wrong, man?" I'm your fucking uncle. Show me respect. <laughs> I'm your uncle. Um, they they shove each other a little bit, and then Eddie ends up attacking him from behind and beats him up on the ramp. Uh, so now we got the uh, the Guerrero family feud going. Long hair Eddie is just on another power level. He just looks like 
somehow he looks like Southern white trash, but he's, uh, you know, Hispanic. So it's a very like niche look. And yeah. he, he stands out like in a crowd. Like you're like, you look at that guy, man, it's a professional artist. Like I remember when we had him for when worlds collide and like it was in that hair versus hair match. It's just, it's his hair is just immaculate. It's one of one. You're not going to find hair like Eddie Guerrero's yes. hair. Long, long, wet hair. Eddie is like, you know, his, his great like main event run in WWE. He had the short hair. But, like, the peak form of Eddie to me is long, wet hair. Because, yeah, you're exactly right. He He's able to come off, like, like he like this kind of, like, fucking, like, you know, southern asshole heel while also being a Mexican guy. <laughs> um, which is kind of what he was doing in AAA in the, early, in the early 90s when he was in the Los Gringos Locos tag team. That's sort of what mm-hmm. he was doing as a heel in Mexico. So it makes sense that he's, like, good at that. It's but great. yeah, long, long, wet hair Eddie is the peak Eddie. It's fantastic. And this was a fun match, too. I mean, we complain a lot with Booker. Like, he's great as a character, but his matches tend to leave you wanting. And I think some of that is because he's got some of that old school, big body guy. Uh, think like a Luger or a Hogan type. Like, that's he's kind of like a showman in that way. But like yeah. when, it, when he gets paired with a guy who's just a fantastic worker, uh, Booker really does bring it to the table. Uh, it's just so fun watching these guys play to that crowd because Eddie was always fantastic at like healing it up and reacting to the crowd. Booker was fantastic at like getting the crowd riled up as a baby face. And then you have Chavo there looking like he's got a nine to five in the morning. It's I, the Chavo, ma- the Chavo part of this made me laugh because he just looks like a random dude that they pulled out of the crowd. Yeah. P- poor Chavo. Chavo. Looks, like, Chavo <laughs> looks like a guy who like just actively does not like pro wrestling and like his girlfriend dragged him to the show. He's <laughs> not fun. Yeah, he looks like he looks like me if like Molly ever maybe go see Hamilton. Like, there you go. Exactly. Like just, just looking exactly. He like He looks Chavo. like a bank manager. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, th- the first thing that kind of caught my eye though for this match was anything that they were doing is the fact that like they have no branding on the ring apron. It looks very bland, and I know that's the, a weird complaint to have. But whenever you have those brand, like the branding on the sides or like having those ads in the ring, it always makes it feel a little bit bigger because that's what you see like big fights do, like boxing does. Like having no branding is a very weird look, especially when it's just a gray uh, ring skirt. So that was really odd. Yeah, I uh, think I think we're just not used to that. You know, not at all. We're, we're used to like everyone does that. You know, everyone has shit all over the ring. Like even indies have that now. Because, I mean, like, just for branding or, like, yeah, like, some people sell, like, I know, like, a lot of the, like, New Japan, at least, like, sells ads on their ring canvas, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, uh, and, yeah, like, boxing and MMA, they do it. Of course, they have ads all over the fucking place. But, like, yeah, it is a little weird to see a big show where it's just, like, a plain ring with nothing on it. Like, it is a little jarring just because you're not used to it. Did you catch uh, Shivani call a spine buster a sidewalk slam? He does that like three times. He does. It was not He's a not great Shivaniism. Booker is not the only guy to do a spine buster. And it's like, it's not like the double A spine buster where he, you know, fucking pivots all the way around. But like, it's still a spine buster. It's just a different variation of it. But Shivani calls it that, like, he calls it a sidewalk slam. Like, like three or four times throughout the car. Multiple times on the show. And it's like, that's it, a completely different move. It takes you out of it very quickly. Uh, so not the best Shivani, but I will say this, the, there was a guy on commentary that like a lot of times when we have WCW, we hate the commentary team there. Well, 
particularly Mark Madden. Oh, well, yeah. When Mark Madden shows up, then it's fucking, oh, my God. But holy shit, Bobby Heenan, it's no wonder why every heel commentator strives to be him because he was fantastic this entire show. I thought he was a real star. Um, yeah. He's got a great line in this match. It's very simple. If they don't like what Eddie has done, just cut him out of the will. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> like, I, like, Bobby was fantastic the entire night of that. Like, he's got a few lines throughout the night that I really enjoyed. Um, and also something that we don't see – consistently in any pay-per-view just like slow-mo replays of moves like yes, seeing seeing the slow-mo drop kick seeing the slow-mo spine buster like big impact i know you can't do it all the time because a lot of times with wrestling the whole thing it, it's supposed to be like subterfuge so when you do slow-mo you can kind of see oh he actually did not really hit him but whatever you can do it man it just looks so good and this yeah. is 1998 and it looks this crisp and so and so many moves in wrestling like the 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 like the 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 subterfuge or the magic of it is that it is a move that if you slow it down like it looks like it should hurt but it doesn't you know what i mean like if you take a spine buster it like will physically look like you're getting slammed through the mat but just like you know the way you take the bump and you know you know bumping in a ring as opposed to like on the fucking ground like it's pretty much fine you know what i mean but, like, you can slow it down and it will still look good. I feel like you don't see it as much a lot of the time because so many people, like, who present pro wrestling are so afraid of, like, like exposing that it's, like, you know, if, if we show this straight on, people will see that it's not real. Like, think and of that's how you end up getting... Like shit, like WWE does it, and AEW does it also to an extent. They're not as bad as WWE, but they do bother me sometimes. Where it's like they do a camera cut on every impact of every fucking move. WWE you know is I mean? horrible at this. Oh WWE my god, is terrible at it. It's one of the reasons why their product is almost like physically impossible to like just watch. But AEW also annoys me with it sometimes mm-hmm. too, even though they're generally better. But like that's how you get the mindset that would lead you to doing that. Just show me the shit, man. Like, you know, when something cool happens in a fucking real sport, they'll show you a a slow-mo replay. And the majority of the time, if you have good pro wrestlers, you can slow it down and show the replay and it will still look good because people will be good at doing it. I am aware though, like, and this is like uh, an example, like with a swanton or a senton, Rolling Senton. Like, a lot of times when you'll see that move miss, like, they just barely clip it. I know uh, we've had some Wardlow Swantons that just, like, barely miss the guy. Or barely hit the guy. And when you slow that down, it's like, why would that hurt him? Yeah. You, but, don't, have to but, do it. you don't have to do it for everything, yeah. obviously. Like, but if it's someone lands something good, fucking, yeah. That missile drop, that missile drop kick's a perfect example. That was picture perfect. He got yeah. height on that, too. Like, he got Montez Ford height on that missile drop kick. Yeah. And I guarantee, like, it looked good, but I guarantee for Eddie, it probably didn't feel like anything. So it it it, it works all the way around. Uh, yeah, I fucking hate the way people, like, present for us in America now. Dude, you try and watch SmackDown, and there's, like, 17 cuts in the manner of five minutes. Yeah, well, I, obviously, we are far from the first people to complain about WWE's direction. You know, it's like, you know, the Kevin Dunn bullshit, it's insane. Like, it's, it's horrifying. But, I, like I said, I, I think AEW could also be a lot better. Uh... You know, to me, the people who are best at it, New Japan is the best at it. Uh, not to be a huge New Japan mark, which I am all the fucking time, but they are they are 
me the best at just like visually portraying professional wrestling. Oh yes. No, I, I think that's without a doubt. Whenever I watch new Japan, it's just like the presentation is on a second level. And, and guess what is a thing that new Japan does slow-mo replays with big moves. They do that and it rocks, but yeah, this match is good. It's a good opener. Yeah. I mean, as you said with Booker, I mean, he's, he's, Booker was not a guy that like was necessarily going to take someone who wasn't a great worker and like elevate them to a great match. But if you put Booker in there with like an Eddie or a Benoit or somebody like that, I, most of his greatest matches in his career were with Benoit. But like if you put him in somewhere like that, he could he could more than hold his own, you know, and he was a guy that just had great babyface energy all the fucking time and just had a way of making you want him to win. Or with King Booker just wanting to watch him lose or get beat to shit. Yeah. Booker, this is this is a pro-Booker T. I know people that aren't a fan of Booker T. I think Jake is a guy that will shit on Booker T. But, because he's always like, Booker wasn't a great wrestler. And it's like, okay, well, fucking who cares? He was cool and people liked him. He was, an, what- he was an average wrestler, but everything else was, like, outstanding about him. He was good enough in the ring and was really good at everything else. And that's all you need. All you really need is to be good enough in the mm-hmm. ring. If you have everything else, and I think he did. So respect to Booker. This is a pro Booker podcast. Next up, uh, the for the first time out of like, this will happen like 15 times in this show, we hear the NWO music for the first time tonight. And out comes Conan. He is going to be facing Hooventud. Guerrera uh and I thought it was kind of funny because like they were they were talking about when they were talking about this match it was like yeah uh Conan uh doesn't like Hoovy because something about like how Hoovy is letting down the Mexican fans or like letting down the tradition of Mexican wrestling it's like you know Conan's not Mexican right <laughs> he's from <laughs> Cuba he's not Mexican he did wrestle in Mexico for a long time but he it's like they're presenting him like he's Mexican and he's not Mexican. So, you know, wrestling, wrestling well, shit, right? Well, it's not like wrestling ethnicities are, uh, you know, the blinds are blurred. They're very, <laughs> they're treated as very interchangeable quite a lot. Uh, but yeah, this is a, a, a solid match. You know, we all love Hoovy. Uh, very, just always a very entertaining wrestler to watch. Um, Hoovy starts off very fast as a bunch of Lucha stuff. Um, there's one spot early on where Conan tries to throw him into the steps face first. Hoovy reverses it, throws him over the steps, and then runs up and jumps off the uh, steel steps into like kind of the, the poetry in motion type move that uh, Jeff Hardy would do into the corner. Um, and then uh, he does a springboard drop kick back into the ring for a near fall. Uh, Conan. Uh, he goes for a running head scissors. Conan reverses it and throws him into the ropes, gets the heat for a while. I uh, never thought of Conan as a submission guy, really, but he does a lot of different, like, interesting submissions in this match for a lot of his heat that, like, you don't often see. He does this, like, um, he, well, he does the uh, the rocking horse submission that I feel like you don't see a whole lot where it's like the Boston Crab where you grab both arms so he's like fully suspended off the ground. And then he like drops him directly on his fucking head. <laughs> he has him up for the rock. And then he just like dumps him like a sack of shit directly on his head. And I like recoil. I like winced when I saw that. He also does this kind of interesting like 
Indian Deathlock slash double chicken wing combo that I thought was interesting that I've also like never really seen. Um, the leg lock where like he's kind of just standing on top of Hoovy within a, it's almost like a reverse sharpshooter. Sort of, yeah. I thought that. I also thought that was really cool. I have it thrown in there. I'm like, I've not seen yeah, that I before. Like, Damn, I wonder who taught Conan all this weird shit. Yeah. Um, and he like. He does a fireman's carry as a submission at one point also, which I have never seen someone use a fireman's carry as a submission. Like he gets him up on his shoulders and it's just like squeezing like his neck. You know what I mean? Like I thought that was like, that's an interesting, uh, interesting deal right there. Um, yeah. You never see someone use a fireman's carry as a submission. Um, does a release German where he, you know, who he flips all the way over. Uh, always cool when you could pull that off. Goes for a top rope German. Hoovy flips out of it. And then, like, as Conan is, like, hanging in the corner after trying to do this uh, German, fires up on him, stomps him out. Um, and then Conan comes back, cuts him off with this huge release wheelbarrow suplex for a near fall. Uh, he goes for a gut wrench powerbomb. Hoovy reverses it into a face buster. Goes for the 450 splash. Misses. Conan hits his uh, cradle DDT. But Hoovy kicks out, hits a Samoan drop. Um, goes for the pin on the Samoan drop, uh, but then at two, Hoovy suddenly counters it into a cradle, and Hoovy gets the pin and wins the match. Ten minutes and 21 seconds afterwards, Conan attacks him after the bell, um, and then just, like, picks him up and fucking yeets Hoovy out of it. <laughs> It's on the floor. A very interesting match to watch between these two guys with a lot of stuff that you don't normally see. I, I feel like the appeal with Conan wasn't always his ring work, but he had me very intrigued with all the different shit he was doing. I, this was a very, as as someone who likes watching kind of uh, obscure shit, there was a lot of obscure shit in here that I, I liked watching. I was like, huh, that's like just stuff that you don't normally see. This is a rare case that we. I don't, I'm not sure how often we see this, but like this was a like Conan did a great job of putting Hoovy over. Like I thought Conan like did this match. Everything he did in this match was to make Hoovy look like a really sympathetic and explosive baby face. Every like with the submission, slowing it down, kind of working boring. Like and then you have Hoovy get these really big spots like. How Hoovy kicked out of like the cradle TDT. Um, a lot of near falls with Hoovy. And then Hoovy getting that nice little uh, surprise win just really was a great job of building Hoovy as like a sympathetic guy. It was really good. Uh, Hoovy helps with all his selling. Like the dude sells his ass off insanely. Um, a lot of Ricochet vibes I got like from Hoovy selling. Like Ricochet yeah, sells absolutely. like an insane madman. Hoovy kind of had that same energy here. The, the leg lock we mentioned was really kind of interesting. The crowd was really hot for when Hoovy got offense in, which is super important. I think a lot of that has to do with Conan just being a very effective heel and just making Hoovy look like that babyface energy, like having big babyface energy. Yeah. I mean, Conan definitely did as, as, as a heel should in a match with someone like Hoovy. Like in this match, he kind of like, you know, to get the most out of what Hoovy's doing, like Conan was trying to slow it down, but he also like, you know, did stuff like he, like his heat was like interesting to me mm -hmm. again. Cause he was just doing some like weird submissions that you don't normally see people do, you know? So I'm like, I'm sitting there and I'm like actually intrigued with what's going on. You know, it's not just him like, 
oh, he's going to kind of slowly stomp them and punch them and, you know, do... Go, go to the corner, or bring them in the corner, do the punches in the corner. Yeah. He's not doing, like, the same just kind of shit that everyone does. Like, he was doing some different stuff that I thought was very intriguing to watch. So it had me hooked because I'm like, damn, what the fuck is Conan doing here? Like, it, and then, you know, when when Hoovy is able to get out and do interesting, you know, like, kind of his cool shit... The crowd really responded to it. I thought it was this was a match that Meltzer didn't love that I actually really liked. Yeah, I I completely agree. I thought um, it was effective. If uh, Dean Malenko has a thousand holds and Chris Jericho has a thousand and four holds, I think we could say Conan at least has a thousand and seven holds. Conan is the greatest submission artist of our time. I've been saying it for years. It's people say it's you know it's it's Malenko or it's Danielson. Or it's whoever. No, it's fucking Conan, baby. He's the he's the first man who realized the fireman's carry can be a <laughs> history. He's on his galaxy brain shit right now. So next up, we have um, this promo. Commissioner J.J. Dillon, formerly the manager of the Four Horsemen. He's now the commissioner of WCW. Uh, they were doing this storyline where they had made Kevin Nash's jackknife powerbomb illegal which is so stupid. Uh, but he's wrestling the Giant tonight, and he announces that the Giant has specifically requested that for tonight's match with Kevin Nash, he wants the whole thing. He wants the power bomb to be legal. And spoil. And they, make, they do this whole promo about it. This whole segment devoted specifically to this. Spoiler alert, Kevin Nash never does the powerbomb. <laughs> never even teases it at all. You don't say he's not going to try and powerbomb a dude that's pushing, quote unquote, 500 pounds. But it's like, why do this? What is the point? What is the fucking point of that at all? Swerve, bro. I don't fucking. It's just, <laughs> come on, seriously. Next up, Cruiserweight title match. This is the match that. When I was looking at the card, it definitely stuck out to me the most. Uh, the Iceman, Dean Malenko, who was on, you know, has been trying and failing unsuccessfully to try and wrest the cruiserweight title away from Chris Jericho. He is challenging the Lionheart one more time for the cruiserweight title. Uh, it is a little distracting because on the WWE Network uh, Peacock version, they have Chris Jericho's WWF music overdubbed on his WWE entrance. Which is just like, that's not how it was. It's like very obvious that it's overdubbed and fake. Uh, I did think it was funny, Jericho, when he walks out to the ring. Uh, there's a guy at ringside who has a sign that says Jericho rules. And Jericho takes the sign away and rips it. <laughs> and then looks at the camera and he says, I'm too good to be that guy's role model. It's like classic. Great classic heel shit from Chris Jericho. This match is, as you would expect, very good. Technically inch perfect. Uh, Malenko is, of course, one of the great technical wrestlers of all time. He is magnificent, as always. Tying Jericho in knots with uh, different submissions to start off the, uh, the uh, match. Jericho uh, hits an enzigiri uh, that knocks uh, Malenko out to the floor. Tries to go for the springboard crossbody to the outside. Misses gets frustrated he tries to walk out he's like you know teasing hey i'm, I'm just gonna leave fuck this i'm walking up the ramp uh charles robinson the referee is counting gets to eight and then dean malenko like stops him from counting like he grabs his like arm as he's like gonna bring it forward 
uh, for the count. And then like Charles Robinson stops and then starts the count again at one, which I didn't realize that's how it worked. Like if I just tell the referee, like, don't count, he'll be like, okay. I didn't realize that's how uh, count outs worked, but apparently they do, at least in WCW. And then Jericho eventually comes back. Uh, love this spot. Jericho catches him on a, like he tries to do a leapfrog and then Jericho stops, catches him and spine busters him down. Another one that, uh, Shivani calls a sidewalk slam when it's not. Um, gets the heat for a while, hits the lion's salt, goes for the pin, but Malenko gets his foot on the ropes. Eventually, Malenko gets a big comeback, hits a uh, back suplex, but uh, Jericho gets up and then hits a running senton for near fall. Ton of cool reversals down the stretch of this match. These guys had really good chemistry. Um, Jericho goes for a top rope backdrop suplex. But as they come down, Malenko turns over and lands on him for a big near fall. More reversals. Jericho goes for a lion tamer. Uh, Malenko gets to the rope. Uh, goes for a... Uh, this this fucking spot was awesome, where uh, Jericho goes for the top rope Frankensteiner, and Malenko reverses it into like a gut buster coming off the middle rope. Um, for a huge near fall. That looked awesome. That looked was my brutal. That was, you know, he hits the gut buster coming down. Like that, man, that's, that spot looked fucking awesome. It was one of my, I think maybe my favorite spot of the whole night. Um, goes for a leg lariat. Jericho catches him and puts him in the walls of Jericho. Great reversal. Um, pulls him back. You know, he's, he's just about to get to the ropes, but Jericho pulls him back into the middle of the ring and then sits down under the full lion tamer. And Malenko taps out, and Jericho once again retains the Cruiserweight title. 14 minutes and 42 seconds, which is a technically very, very good wrestling match. Afterwards, Malenko, the Iceman, the man who never shows any emotion, is visibly very, very frustrated. And you get Mean Gene Okerlund comes down. He gets in the ring, and he basically starts berating Malenko. Goes at him hard. Which was very weird. Um, there's also some dickhead flashing a laser pointer on D- Dean Malenko's face during <laughs> this interview, but he's like, really, he's like, you know, you should have won this match. Everyone thought you were going to win, but you didn't. You are 0 and 4 in your last four pay-per-view matches. And he says, that makes you Dean Malenko a bona fide loser. <sighs> and he says, where, so where does Dean Malenko go from here? And Dean Malenko goes in uh, grabs the microphone, and he just says, home. And he walks off. And that sets up one of my personal favorite WCW Cruiserweight moments. A couple months later, where he returns as the fake Cyclope in the Battle Royal, he wins the Battle Royal under the the mask of the luchador Cyclope on uh, Nitro. And it's it's a match to get a Cruiserweight title shot. And then when Jericho gets in the ring, he takes the mask off and he reveals that he's Dean Malenko and the crowd goes crazy. One of my favorite moments that sets up. That was that was his next appearance after him walking off here. And that's that's one that I highly recommend. That's like a really fucking cool moment. That's fantastic. Oh, man. This was a again, very fun, technically sound spot fest. Like there's a lot of good spots in here, too. Like this is not just like uh, like with uh, we'll talk about it later later with uh you know Kurt Hennig and Bret Hart like this is not just like a technically sound match there's a lot of good wow holy shit moments here too yes. um and they tell a really good story in the ring too 
first of all, it's just funny to think about Chris Jericho as a cruiserweight. It's just, it's just the the thought is yeah. very funny nowadays. But like you know, he is a smaller guy back then. Yeah. Uh, the the role model line again, Jericho, another guy who just gets the crowd. Yeah, talk about a guy who just fucking gets for wrestling, man. I mean, Chris Jericho is a person like people call him the goat and, you know, or or some people call him the goat. And it's not because he's the greatest in-ring wrestler of all time, even though he was like an incredible in-ring wrestler. There have been guys who were better in-ring wrestlers than Jericho, although he was great at it uh, and, and still is really good at it. There are guys who are better promos than Jericho, even though he's great at it. But like. How there are very few people who just fucking understand wrestling the way that he does. You know what I mean? This is going to be a weird comp, and this might be a stretch, but I'm going to make it anyway. So we talk about like Vince always getting his comeuppance, right? Like Vince, when he's good and was on his game, like got the business pretty dang well. Jericho is that on steroids, plus being a great wrestler and like a fantastic worker and a good promo. Because like Vince on the mic is grating, but like Jericho. Has like Jericho has every tool in the bag, literally, yeah. like not just the stuff you see, but the stuff you don't see. Yeah, Jericho, Jericho, absolutely. I think that is one of the big, great strengths of Jericho, and that is why he has always been such a great heel. Is like he is not afraid to be made to look like an idiot. That was again the, one of the things about Vince that made him one of the great heels of all time is that Vince was, you know, he would be like the biggest piece of shit in the world. But when he got his comeuppance, he got his comeuppance in a spectacular fucking way mm-hmm. that left you really satisfied. That was, I think, when you would see people like complain about Stephanie, it was because like she was in a grading heel, but also never got her fucking comeuppance ever. Like Vince always got his comeuppance in a spectacular way. And Chris Jericho was always willing and always has been willing to like when when the time comes for him to lose. And the time comes for him to look like a fucking moron and like get his comeuppance. He does it wholeheartedly. Like and the, that is one of the reasons why he's so great. Like the Mimosa Mayhem match is a perfect example yes. of that. Perfect example of that. Yeah, he's fucking, yeah. He gets drowned in Mimosa. <laughs> perfect example of it. Like the time had come for Jericho to not just lose, but lose in a completely spectacular way. And boy, he fucking did it. You know what I mean? Stadium Stampede. The time had come for Jericho and his boys to lose in a spectacular way. And boy, he fucking did it. You know? And, and, and to go on about Jericho, like his trunks, the reference to the thousand four holds is just, again, another great little heel piece to the whole character. Um, and the come on baby pin. Those come on, baby pin attempts are just like <laughs> so com- yeah. com- like it's, comedic. It's so funny because it's like, yeah, he, he always sells that like he's going. <laughs> he has never won a match with that in thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> Doing it, <laughs> and then and then there's also the story of Malenko of like there's a lot of offense Jericho gets, but the one thing that Jericho does not get till the very end is the lion tamer walls of Jericho, and like Malenko does a great job of countering every time. Jericho goes for it until the very end. It's a, once he's in it, he doesn't escape from it. It just that that's it. That's the match. And I think that's a really good story that they told throughout the entire match. Um, another great Bobby Heenan line. Uh, if Jericho knows a thousand and four moves, that Malenko knows a thousand and five counters. Yeah, that's a great line. 
That's a great line to put over Dean Malenko, honestly. And and then like the Mean Gene stuff too. Like th- this was a this fifteen minutes. Like if you want to show someone why is pro wrestling something that you're interested in, just show them like this entire segment because everything about this segment is perfect pro wrestling. Yeah, I, I think that if you really looked, um, you could probably find better matches that these guys had between themselves. But this just really is on point all the way through. Technically, it's excellent. It tells a story. All the work, everything that happens makes sense. You know, they are on point with everything that they do. And, you know, both guys play their role really well. Um, and then it sets up perfectly something really, really cool that happens later on. That's like the payoff to this story. Long-term, st- long-term storytelling. Dean Malenko making a surprise comeback and then beating Jericho to win the title. It's it's just, this is good pro wrestling, ladies and gentlemen. I just also wish that, like, you know, the fucking, why, why did Mean Gene have to be an asshole? Like, can you just fuck up? Like, you can get there without being like, Dean Malenko, you're a loser and a piece of shit. You can go fuck yourself, you fucking dummy. Like, I don't know. You uh, that... can get to the same place without doing that. It may because, be. Like, I, I don't, I do not like, I, I, I've said this before. I don't like heel announcers generally uh, because 99% of the time they're trying to do a Bobby Heenan impression and there's only one Bobby Heenan. There's only one guy who was able to be Bobby Heenan and that was Bobby Heenan. But all these fucking people have tried and they all suck at it. And I definitely don't like bad uh, like heel backstage interviewers because it's like, you know, like if, if someone like that is like, being an asshole like that to your face, I feel like as a pro wrestler, you're like obliged to kick their ass. But it's like, okay, if you kick a 60-year-old man, you know, oh, okay, you kicked 60-year-old mean Gene Okerlund's ass. Oh, you look fucking tough. It's kind of like a no-win situation for the baby face. You either have to stand there and take it and look like a pussy, or you beat up this 65-year-old man, and then it's like, oh, well, you beat up a 65-year-old man. Look at you, tough guy, you know? I think in a lot of instances you are right. This one, though, I think it's the case of, like, you know, Mean Gene is presenting this as fact. It's almost like investigative reporting. And even though it comes off as very heelish asshole, like, uh, an interviewer, I think that's kind of the cliche that Mean Gene wanted to go for. And I think that it works in making Dean, you know, a little bit more sympathetic because, you know, Mean Gene's right. If he, he's 0-4 in his last four pay-per-view matches, he's come this close but never won the Cruiserweight title. And you really kind of start feeling sympathetic because all these things are true. And Malenko just being the guy who hasn't – he's so close to that ring no, I, and he I can't know. get there. I know. Like that is the story, absolutely. And it is a it, it is a completely, completely solid story, absolutely, all the way around. But I'm just saying like – we did not mean mean, mean mean Gene to be a fucking asshole randomly. It's not like, you know, like in the NBA finals, you're, you're not going to see fucking uh, like Casty Hubbard go up to fucking uh, Draymond Green and be like, Draymond, you played like shit, you fucking <laughs> asshole. <laughs> you know, like that's not going to happen. But, but there are going to be instances like in the postgame presser where people are going to be going at Draymond and saying, Draymond, yeah. do you think your podcast is a distraction to the team? Yes, but they're not there. They will. They will give voice to those questions, but they will also, what they won't do is say, 
Draymond, you really played like shit tonight, and you're a fucking loser, and also you're ugly. You know, <laughs> which is basically what Mean Gene does. He's like, Dean, you fucking suck, dude. What the fuck is wrong with you, you loser? <laughs> you fucking, you fucking loser. <laughs> you know, like there's a way to like present the uh, the like the story and the facts, like. Dean Malenko, you've lost four straight matches to Chris Jericho and blah, blah, blah. You could present that without, like, have it, without, like, the distracting part of, like, God damn, why is Mean Gene being such a dick to King Dean Malenko? Because he's not actually turning heel. No. Like, that's the thing. Mean Gene doesn't actually turn heel here. He's just decided for some reason that he hates Dean Malenko now. Uh, here, here's a deep cut for you that I'm now thinking of remembering like sports things. Remember when Tory and Prince just got all uppity about being asked about what a rebound is? Yes. When you, I'll, I'll never forget that. Well, usually when you go up and you grab the basketball with two hands, that would be considered a rebound. <laughs> that was, I will never forget that as long as I live, honestly. So fucking funny. Um, so, uh, next up. Heart segue. <laughs> we really went deep into this uh, fucking mean gene thing. So, um, next up we have Raven is cutting a promo at the internet station. The, the internet station. Hold on. Station backstage. Uh, he says, he's challenging for the U.S. title tonight. He says, revenge is a dish best served cold. And even though it's 75 degrees here in Mobile, Alabama, it'll be freezing cold tonight. When I win the U.S. title. Next up, we have a match. It is Scott Steiner very early after his heel turn, turning on uh, his brother Rick and uh, joining the NWO, transitioning into the Big Papa Pump character that we would know and love. Uh, flashes the peaks on his way in. We love the peaks and we love the freaks, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he is facing the total package Lex Luger. Um, this is a pretty quick match. Uh, Scott uh, beats him up straight out of the gate. We really get straight to the action. Um, hits a belly-to-belly suplex. Tries to suplex him uh, back into the ring. But Luger blocks it, sends it to the floor. We get a few barricade spots. At one point, they uh, whip Steiner over the barricade into the crowd. Uh, Luger hits a few clotheslines. Uh, hits a power slam. Goes for the rack. But uh, Steiner low blows him. Um Puts him in the Steiner recliner where, like, half of Lex Luger's body is literally out of the fucking ring. It's so close to the ropes. Like, his his entire, like, lower body is, like, dangling over the side of the ring. And at first, it doesn't look like the ref is going to do anything about it, but eventually he does break it up. Um, Scott Steiner goes outside, grabs a chair. His brother Rick comes down uh, to confront him. Rick's still a babyface. Uh, we get fellow NWO member Scott Norton, big fucking beefy lad Scott Norton, one of the beefiest men who ever walked the earth, uh, attacks Rick from behind. And off of this distraction, that allows Lex Luger to hit him with the forearm to the back of the head and knock him out and get the pin and win the match uh, in three minutes and 53 seconds. We get the Steiner brothers facing off for a brief second in the ring. And then Rick backdrops Scott out of the ring and him and Scott Norton run for the hills. Ah, uh, yes. I love the NWO, NWO run-ins. I, nothing I love more than the NWO sticking their nose in businesses. It's like very – ah, oh man. The NWO stuff can be a little bit grating at times. I 
I don't know how Undisputed Era made, did it so long without it getting stale, but like we've seen so much of NWO run-ins at this point on the podcast. I think a big part of when, when you mentioned that, because Undisputed Era were like in a lot of ways, like, I mean, like I remember when they, when they debuted their theme song, it was like, this is just a fucking NWO ripoff. <laughs> but like, I think part of it is that they were good at wrestling. Probably. You know what I mean? And like, you know, they actually had good matches with people, you know, and like the majority of these NWO matches when it's like, you know, Hogan and, you know, love Kevin Nash, but he was not, he, he very rarely had his working shoes on. You know what I mean? RIP Scott Hall. Love Scott Hall. He's a fucking legend and was a great worker, but at WCW, he wasn't really focusing on putting on banger matches. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a lot of these guys, it's just like, yeah, boring matches, and then there's a run-in. Also, also, like, how often do you ever see uh, a guy win a match with a clubbing blow to the back of the head from not a weapon? Yeah. Not good. Well, that was the, the story with Luger, and I think this got introduced when he was in WWF. I can't remember. Actually, it might have been before, actually. I, he'd been doing this for a while. He had had a motorcycle crash. And according to the storyline, I don't know if this was actually true, but according to the storyline, he like broken his arm. And at least according to the story, he had had a metal plate inserted in his okay. forearm. So he would knock people out with the form, especially when he was a heel. And it was like, I think at one point they had the gimmick where he was like supposed to wear a like a pad on the forearm. Um, but like, you know, the heel, like he would take it off when the ref wasn't looking and hit people with the forearm. And it was like, Oh, he hit him with the metal thing. He knocked him out. So that was like always part of his gimmick. But if that's the case, then why did Steiner get up right away afterwards? Like, like now no selling. So it it, it convolutes everything. Good um, question, Angela. <laughs> and it's a shame too because like obviously this is not going to be a work rate classic. Classic. It's Luger versus Steiner. Like it's and it's not Rick Steiner. It's Scott Steiner. It's not going to be a work rate classic. But like on paper, it's a really cool match. It's two very jacked individuals. Luger being more so the like the yesteryear guy. Steiner being not the future, but like the current. I guess the present would probably be the best way to describe it. But man, like it it should be a much more interesting match than what ended up being. Even though even in a short four minute form, like it should have been much more interesting. Uh, All the all white Scott Steiner singlet though powerful striking yeah. and powerful. then you, and then you get the Steiner on Steiner feud which everyone wants to see because both those guys just work really well together and yeah. would will be fantastic in theory uh in, in theory yeah theory. <laughs> so it's fun Lex has a decent theme too so the, the match left me wanting more the NWO stuff made me wanting less uh very mixed feelings on it yeah yeah it it it, uh could have yeah it's definitely one of those like where um this match happening at the time it did uh it was never gonna be like there's there's no world in which it's a five-star match or anything but like you just definitely feel like there could have been a way where it was way more interesting than it was but it wasn't you know it just kind of is there and then it's over it exists. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have uh, what they call a triple jeopardy match, which in practice means it's just a triple threat, falls count anywhere match. They call it a triple jeopardy match. For the U.S. title, it is the champion, 
Diamond Dallas Page, the pride of Jersey, defending against Raven and Chris Benoit. And this is really funny to me because, you know, I always read the uh, Wrestling Observer. Um, at this point in 1998, uh, it's, it's easy to forget. And I, we've touched on this a little bit before, but the concept of the triple threat match as we know it today was still a very novel idea. Like the idea of, yeah, it's three guys and the first pinfall ends the match. We're so used to it now because it's so standardized pro wrestling. But it was still a very novel idea at the time. And it's funny seeing like how much Dave Meltzer just hates the fucking idea. He's just like, yeah, this fucking match idea makes no fucking sense. It's so stupid. And it's what it's lets like, you know that Meltzer is not always right. Yeah. It's like, buddy, you're going to hate the next 25 <laughs> years of wrestling, my guy. Um, but this match is very entertaining, though. It really is. Um it, it, it just it's a big fucking like it's a lot of brawling, but it's like good brawling and a lot of like weapon spots. But they do it in a lot of entertaining and creative and fun ways. Um, it's just a fun, fun, fun to watch match. Uh, they do like a triple lockup at the beginning of the match, which made me very happy to look at. And then the action just comes really hot and heavy. We have a lot of, you know. Near falls early on in the match, pins getting broken up by the third guy. Uh, DDP hits a big plancha over the top rope to the outside under both guys. Benoit hits a big stalling splash up the top rope, gets broken up. Then Raven hits a dive to the outside onto both Benoit and DDP. Eventually start to brawl up the ramp, get some barricade action going. We get a trash can introduced. Uh, they put the trash can on top of Raven. And then Benoit and DDP beat the shit out of it with crutches, which I, I always love a spot like that. Um, Benoit then hits DDP with the can and suplexes him on the floor. Him and Raven then form a, a little bit of an alliance against DDP, trying to take out the champ and make sure that he can we, 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 you know, get a new champion. They throw DDP through the uncensored sign on the stage twice. They send him right through this. You know, I guess it was like gimmick, like plastic or whatever, but it always looks cool uh, when you do something like that. And then Benoit start uh, Benoit and Raven start fighting. They do a lot of different fucking weapons. Uh, Benoit literally hits him with the kitchen sink at one point. Um, they choke each other with like a velvet theater rope. Um, Benoit whips Raven into a table set up against the ramp that like doesn't really break at all. Not the, not the last table in this match that will not break properly. Um, they end up going back into the ring. Uh, get some chair stuff going on. Benoit drop toe holds Raven face first into a chair set up in the middle of the ring. While they're fighting, we see DDP reemerge. He is crawling on his hands and knees, selling the shit out of getting thrown through the, uh, the stage. He is crawling on his fucking hands and knees up the ramp back into the ring as Raven and Benoit are fighting. Um, we then get in, he gets back involved. We get a, a double sleeper into like a double jawbreaker spot, which I thought was really cool. Um, and then we have a, a spot that I love. Benoit goes for the three rolling Germans on Raven. And then, on the last one, DDP slips behind one and turns the last of these three Germans into a double German, which was fucking awesome. Cool as hell. I loved that. Um, 
Raven has his minions at ringside. One of them has a sign that literally just says, use my sign on it. DD, uh, Raven takes the sign and uh, hits, uh, I think, DDP with it. And then reveals that there is a stop sign inside of the... Surprise uh, stop sign. Surprise, surprise. Uh, He sets up a table, um, sets DDP up on the table, uh, and then Benoit hits him with the sign. The finish of the match comes where uh, Benoit has... So we have DDP set up laying on this table. He's been knocked out by the stop sign. We have Raven in the corner... Benoit is on top of Raven doing the 10 punches in the corner. And then DDP revives. He gets up off the table. He tosses Benoit out of the ring and then uh, gets a hold of Raven, ends up hitting a top rope diamond cutter onto the table. The table does not break. (laughs) The table does not fucking break. Uh, Raven ends up hitting the table and like sliding onto the mat. And DDP gets the pin and retains the belt in 17 minutes and nine seconds. Very, very entertaining match. The uh, DDP theme, always a classic to hear. Once you hear that music start, you're like, oh, I know who's coming out now. You are are instantly transported to Asbury Park, New Jersey, and you are chain smoking on the beach. The coolest Jersey guy to have ever existed. The triple color and elbow spot, very funny, like very comical to start off. And I think like that is the great thing. Another great thing about professional wrestling is that it's silly at sometimes, but, and then you have like this serious action, like, you know, throwing a guy through those lights. We went from w, uh, WCW, uh, uncensored to WCW censored very fast. I, I, I did love <laughs> that. Like you mentioned the triple lockup spot. I do want to like point out the fact again that like very few of these matches had happened yet in America. Even even by this point in 1998, and it just like kind of gives me the impression that like like in, in story like these guys don't know. Okay, well, how do we wrestle this match? Like we've never really been in one of these before. So what do we do? Do we like lock up? What what are what are we supposed to do here? And then they end up starting to fight. But it like it gives off this impression of uncertainty at the beginning of the match that like I thought made a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that I liked a lot. Uh, we also have another Shivani line. Never seen three men hooking up. Well, uh, <laughs> listen, it's 1998. Uh, I'm sure, you know, video, limited options on the internet for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can wait maybe 10 years and then, you know, things will things will uh, go a little better for, uh, for good old Shivani. Uh yeah, but these three really did put on a great match, especially with, at this time with triple threat matches being new. Because a lot of times when we see these triple threat matches, there are people that randomly just stand in a corner aimlessly, not really doing anything. But it felt like everyone in this match was doing something at all times, whether it was selling offense, being beat up, or like appropriate team ups as opposed to just out of the blue team ups. Like there wasn't a lot of like, well, why is DDP helping Raven now? They were just the Raven just punched him. It, it, you didn't have a lot of those moments. Uh, the trash can shots looked very stiff. Uh, the kitchen sink spot where Benoit just randomly gets a kitchen sink and hits Raven yeah. with it. Where the fuck did, <laughs> where did they pull that out? Oh man. That was so good. Raven just the commitment that Raven has throwing himself into objects or like metal or anything is just uh, so much gusto 
to just throw himself into all these things. It's it's truly an admirable. The double sleeper into the double jawbreaker, another fun, really fun spot like you mentioned. The double German classic, the surprise stop sign. And man, they should have pre-cut those tables because that was a very stiff t- uh, diamond yeah, cutter yeah. onto that. We had we had two uh, botched table breaks in a row. You know, we had the one on the ramp off the off the Irish whip, and then we have the diamond cutter. I'm pretty sure both Raven. Raven. <laughs> I would be such such a Raven mark in the '90s. It would not oh. be funny. It's not even a fucking question. I absolutely know that you would be a huge Raven boy. You'd be you'd be in the flock, man. Quote the Raven, nevermore. Raven is 100% on the Jewish wrestling Mount Rushmore. He is one of our all-time top Jews. He is he is very important to us. What, what's that very, for? Very go, important go, to us as a people. Goldberg's up there too, right? Yeah, Goldberg, absolutely. For me, it is... Goldberg, it is Raven, it is Colt Cabana, and then yours truly, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you gotta put yourself over. Being a podcaster, ladies and gentlemen, I get I get that last spot. Fuck you. Uh yeah, this match is so much fun to watch. I, yeah, there there are some really fun like it is it is 17 minutes long and it feels a lot shorter. You are, I, I just, I was very engaged. Banged in the whip. The time I watched it, you know, it's not, it's, and it's not that they were like moving at a crazy pace, doing insane shit constantly, but it just always felt like, it's like you said, it always felt like something was happening. You know what I mean? They beat the hell out of each other. Yeah. They beat the fuck out of each other. They did some very creative stuff and it was just really entertaining. It had me hooked from start to finish. I loved watching this match. Uh, and yeah, the as someone who has been known to do uh, three rolling Germans in a row, uh, myself, I loved the the spot where he turned it into the double at the end and like all of them go down. I loved that spot. I thought that was so cool. Just a fun, fun match from start to finish that I highly recommend watching. Next up, we have uh, the aforementioned Kevin Nash and the Giants match. Uh, the Giants, who, of course, as was previously mentioned by J.J. Dillon, has specifically requested that Kevin Nash's banned jackknife powerbomb be made legal for this match. The Giant walking out with a neck brace on, and they are, uh, you know, it's, it's very much positioned as, uh, finisher, big move versus finish, uh, big move. It is the jackknife powerbomb versus the chokeslam. Um, and this match is really not very good and not a whole lot happens, to be honest with you. Um, Giant does do a couple um, athletic things in this match that we don't really see a whole lot of from, uh, you know, like young Big Show was pretty athletic relatively for a guy his size. Uh, but as you know, I'm, I'm not a big, big show fan. Um, does hit a, a cool jumping elbow at one point, goes up for a second one, misses, um, gets up completely fine, clothesline Nash out. Uh, Nash cuts him off, throwing him headfirst in the ring post. Um, one Right after this, Tony Schiavone says, and I quote, the giant moving very slowly here now, which he would uh, for the rest of his career. Um, 
Kevin Nash locks on a sleeper for a little bit, uh, rips off the Giants' neck brace, throws it aside. Uh, Giant comes back by kicking him directly in the nuts in front of the referee with no call whatsoever. None. Um, gets a little bit of a comeback, hits a body slam, calls for the choke slam. But here comes running in NWO member Brian Adams, a.k.a. Crush, uh, later in Chronic. I don't think Chronic was a tag team yet, but boy, those guys fucking sucked, didn't they? Um, hits him with a baseball bat uh, and uh, gets the disqualification. So the Giant is the winner by DQ in six minutes and 36 seconds. We also have two more NWO guys. Uh, Conan, we see him again. He runs in. Also, uh, Virgil runs in. They attack the Giant. Giant ends up uh, cleaning house, breaks the baseball bat over his knee, which is cool. Um, he's about to hit Brian Adams with a big choke slam, but Nash then uh, acquires another baseball bat from somewhere and breaks it over the Giants' back, and uh, the NWO takes off, and that's the end of this match. Thank God it ended. <laughs> this was not... I could not have watched much more than that, to be honest. Yes, this was appropriately short. Um, while it is impressive to see these two large specimens of human beings go at it. Big Show, the giant, coming out with no music and a neck brace. He looks like a dork. If he has a neck brace and is still wrestling a match, like nothing's really wrong, then what's the point of the neck brace? There's a lot here that doesn't make sense. It's just a lot of not making sense. The only thing cool about this was the broken bat spots. That was it. Outside of that, nothing else mattered. Nothing else I cared about. This was a waste of seven minutes, but but fortunately, it was a uh, you know it was only seven minutes and not twelve. Yes, this match is. I mean, fuck, like what you would expect it to be. I mean, if you put up Kevin Nash and the Big Show in a match, you're gonna get a fucking plotter uh and that's what we get understatement it is it's not entertaining not much of substance really happens in it and again it's just the absurdity of the fact that like and uh, you expect this shit from wcw but yeah you literally have a whole segment um earlier on in the show you take time out of the show to remind the fans like okay here's the deal Kevin Nash can use the power bomb tonight and then have that not figure in at all. Like Kevin Nash not only doesn't ever power bomb the giant. I don't know if he could or couldn't. No way. There's no chance. Probably not, but he never even tries. Like he doesn't even like it. It doesn't play any sort of factor at all in the story. And at that point, it's just like, okay, what was the point of this? Why did I watch that? That was a waste of, you know, two, three minutes that could have been given to like the Jericho Malenko match or something that I actually wanted to fucking see. Fuck off. That's so fucking stupid. Like, it's just, it's just the, uh, you know, complete lack of uh, any sort of logic that would come to define World Championship Wrestling, ladies and gentlemen. Unless you have two big guy, one big guy that can work, you should not be doing big guy versus big guy matches. You need to have some, you need to have a big guy that can work. Like, Lance Archer is the perfect big guy for these like big guy versus big guy matches because he sells like hell. Yeah. Like you need if, to have a guy who's like at, at the very least has some like real athletic juice that neither of these guys really have. None. You know what I mean? Like I've seen, I've seen Nash have good matches like earlier in his career, but they were always like Bret Hart. You know what I mean? It's like 
he was not a guy that was really motivated to go out there and have a great match. And then I, the big show is the big show. I would be unsurprised if we got a Satnam Singh Lance Archer match sometime this year, but that's exactly the kind of matchup you would need to put together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, just not a huge fan of like really, really enormous dudes. I feel like at a certain point there's diminishing returns on mm-hmm. a guy being that fucking huge. Yep. Uh, I hope Satnam Singh turns out good. Didn't really do a whole lot in his match last night. He is like, he does hit that like, holy shit, that's a spectacle of a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, Omos, at the very least, like when you first saw him, you were like, holy shit, that guy's huge. And then like, you actually had to watch him wrestle. They have him yeah. wrestling in uh, skinny jeans too, which is not a great look. Not a great look at all. But it was like, at the very least, when I first saw Omos, I was like, holy hell, look at the size of this lad. That boy and then huge. I was like, okay. Well, that was that was that was cool. Now I never need to see this guy again. Yep. Next up, we have two of the all-time great workers. It is Kurt Hennig, aka Mr. Perfect. Um, he is apparently in the NWO, but he's still coming out. He's not wearing any sort of like NWO style gear. He's just wearing his classic blue singlet, accompanied by ravishing Rick Rude, um, and he is facing Brett the Hitman Hart who is wearing a Calgary Hitman jersey. I actually really need to get a Calgary Hitman jersey. Agreed. I feel like I, I that's something I need to own. Um, this match is another match that is technically very good, uh, built up very slow. Um, I did like the fact that Mike Tanay, at the very least, references their history in WWF. Um, Brett, of course, beat Mr. Perfect for the Intercontinental title. Uh, in 1991 in a classic match that I recommend to everybody. Um, Bill, he references their history without actually mentioning the WWF. I think that's about as good as you could possibly expect. I did appreciate that. Um, we get uh, Brett locks in the sharpshooter early in the match, but uh, Rick Rude, behind the ref's back, is able to get in and deck Brett Hart to uh, get him to break up hold. Uh, and then we get Kurt Hennig, Works over the leg for a while. Um, has the figure four on at one point. Um, most of his heat is him working the leg. Um, and then Bret Hart, again, This the, the problem with this match is it's very technically good. The fans are just not invested at all. They are like dead silent for Bret's comeback. Uh, Bret hits all of his moves. You know, he hits the Russian leg sweep. He hits Bulldog. It's his backbreaker. Hits his, you know, middle rope kind of diving elbow drop thing that he would do. Um, Kurt winds up cutting him off Kurt hits the perfect plex uh, but Brett ends up kicking out of that um, and the finish of the match I did think was uh, the the way they, they worked the reversals was pretty cool um, Brett pushes Kurt Hennig into Rick Rude on the apron goes for an O'Connor roll perfect rolls through grabs the tights but Brett kicks out and then the finish of the match Kurt Hennig goes for a sunset flip but Brett is able to roll through and very smoothly go from that into locking in the sharpshooter right in the middle of the ring. Kurt Hennig taps out in 13 minutes and 51 seconds. He taps out right before Rick Rude can get to him. Um, afterwards, Rick Rude and Kurt Hennig beat up Bret Hart in the ring. And uh, Rick Rude hits him with the uh, Rude Awakening neckbreaker. And Kurt Hennig hits him with a chair right in the head. And uh, it's the end of the segment. Good match. Perfectly, like, you have two guys who are all, two of the all-time great workers of that that era, right, in, in the United States. And 
it is perfectly well worked, but it just sort of felt like they were like they could have this match in their sleep. You know what I mean? There is also a tremendously empty vacuum of heat for this match for whatever reason. Like the crowd was just near dead on arrival. I, I, I just there wasn't with these two guys. It makes no sense too because Henning. You know, pretty big name. Bret Hart obviously is always a fan favorite, but like no one really gave a shit. Like there's yeah. no, there was not a single care in the crowd. Um, it was technically sound, but there wasn't that. Like at least when we look at like technically sound, Jericho Malenko felt like a pay per view match. Like that felt like there are enough moments here to make it worthy of being on pay per view. Nothing was done in this match that made me feel like this was a pay-per-view match. And even the beatdown afterwards was not really anything to write home about. It was a very, again, like you said, they could have done this in their sleep. All three of these guys in their sleep. By far the highlight of the match is the first time that Hart has a sharpshooter in and Rude gets in, hits him, gets out before the ref can notice it. And then the the crowd's just constantly pointing at Rude and Rude's just like, I don't know what they're talking about. And, and just like playing off of how fast he was getting in the ring. That's the highlight. Outside of that, the crowd not being into it definitely hurts it. But there's not really much else that I have in my notes for this, you know, 14 minute match between these two yeah. guys. The crowd is deathly silent the whole time. And yeah, you have these two guys who are great, like all timers, and who have had fantastic, fantastic, classic matches with each other before. Um, and, you know, they're a little bit older by this point, but they're still good in the ring. They're still, a, you know, as good or better in the ring as probably anybody in WCW, at least, like, on the heavyweight side. And, yeah, there's just kind of nothing in this match to get your blood going at all. You know, and that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, it, I feel like there's no heat. It just kind of never progresses past this point where you feel like, all right, they're kind of opening it up and they're slowly building it up. And then it, you just kind of end up meandering to the end. Yep. It never really picks up in intensity in any, any way, shape or form. And that's yeah, a shame. A, yeah. Not a bad match by any means. Every, yeah. And everything is worked well. It just isn't really get, it doesn't get there. You know, it doesn't get to where you want it to be. But yeah, red heart eats Kurt Hennig. Next up, we got two matches left. WCW title on the line. We have, man, so fucking weird to see an NWO Dusty Rhodes. Never, never sits right. He is accompanying the challenger Scott Hall, who is challenging the icon Sting, baby. Um, see the way that Scott Hall was selling? In this oh, bag? my God. I actually have this in my notes. So the guy that, like, I for whatever reason, the guy I think of when I see Scott Hall selling like this it's Mox. Like, Moxley sell, like, kind of does that knocked silly, a little bit of a slight oversell, but not to the point where you think it's comical. Yeah. And, like, it's just a funny way to sell. But, yes, yeah, Scott Hall was, like, in his bag with those the entire match. Yeah. Scott Hall, with some of the most over-the-top selling that I've seen since, like, Shawn Michaels. Like, like this side of, like, Shawn Michaels against Hogan in SummerSlam. Like, he is like, st- like every time Sting hits him, he is stumbling around like it's like it's a it's like real slapstick shit. It's fun to watch. Like it makes <laughs> this match a lot more entertaining. Um, we have a, a spot where Dusty on the outside uh, trips Sting as he's running the ropes. Sting, you know, 
kind of goes after him a little bit. That allows Scott Hall to cut him off in a clothesline. It's the heat for a while. They do the, uh, this is a, a great sting spot that I, I've always loved. They do the spot where they collide heads in the middle of the ring. Hall bumps, sing leg ends up, he's up for a second, and then he falls down, and he, like, like you know, unconsciously headbutts Scott Hall in the dick. I, I, that's <laughs> a great classic sting spot that I've always loved. Um, funniest part of the show, by far, is right after this. Scott Hall is, is distracting the referee. Dusty Rhodes, like, exaggeratedly sneaking into the ring. Like, he's doing, like, the hand like the hand motions, like, oh, I'm sneaking into the ring. They're not going to see me. <laughs> and then he, like, behind the referee's back, and then does, like, the loudest elbow drop anyone has in the history of the fucking elbow drops. <laughs> and the referee turns around, and he's already out of the ring, and he's like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> but, like, Dusty Rhodes made me lose my shit. <laughs> I was chortling that entire time. I can't even really, like, do it justice to, like, describe how he was, like, sneaking into the ring. It was just, like, a cartoon. Tiptoe through the window. Yeah. <laughs> it was Dusty Rhodes, human cartoon. One of the... Just so fucking funny. Um, <laughs> so he hits this huge elbow drop on Sting. Sting kicks out. Gets his comeback. Hits a stinger splash to the back, goes for the scorpion death lock, but ends up dropping the submission hold to take out Dusty. Uh, then we get a ref bump. Dusty throws a foreign object into the ring. Hall decks him with it, but Sting kicks out. Hall hooks him up for the outsider's edge, what he called the move in WCW. And Sting ends up reversing it right into the scorpion death drop, and he gets the pin and retains the title eight minutes and 28 seconds. Sting still the champ. I applaud both these guys for making this match silly, but still feeling very important. Like, this still felt like a World Heavyweight Championship match, despite it not being the main event, Hogan. Uh, And and with all, like, the comedy spots. Like, I I think that's the mark of, like, two guys who really know, like, the craft. And Sting and Scott Hall were two of the guys who were at the best levels during this time period. Um the, the dusty elbow is just like without a doubt one of the funniest things I've seen. Just him creeping to Sting's unconscious body to drop an elbow, hysterical. Uh, the de- the death drop uh, transition could have been a little bit cleaner from the ra- uh, outsider's edge, but you know it, it's fine. It, it, it's not gonna really mark the match any points. Uh, but super fun. Like Dusty was really kind of funny in this match, even though I don't like NWO Dusty. Was the NWO just like an excuse for every popular babyface to play heel? Yes. <laughs> it was like, like honestly, Nash and Hall were really like them two specifically were on the cutting edge of being a, a very novel idea, a heel that was cool. And then, like, every single person was like, a heel? That was cool? I want to do that. And then <laughs> so that's how everyone ended up in the NWO. <laughs> that, that, that's got to be the only explanation. It's the only explanation that makes sense to me now. Because, like, Dusty Rhodes, American Dream Dusty Rhodes, makes zero sense to be in the NWO. Unless he was like, you know, I was a face my entire career. I want to heal it up a little bit. Yeah. And, uh. Leave it to Dusty fucking Rhodes to manage to, like, completely steal the show in this WCW title match that does not involve him. But he ends up being the part of the match that I remember more than anything else was 
his fucking big old ass doing the fucking like exaggerated. Ooh, I'm sneaking into the ring. Ooh. That was so fucking funny. And it's the last moment of joy on this entire card, unfortunately. Yeah. Leave it to Dusty to continue to find a way to steal the show because he is the GOAT. Um, yeah, amazing. Next up. All right, we got it. We, we, we have to have talk to about it, really? We, do we have to? We got these mega powers here, and by God, they're going to fucking explode on us, all right? Um, we have Michael Buffer in the ring as we lower the cage for the main event. The laser pointer guy is back, by the way, shining his laser pointer on Michael Buffer. Uh, yes, WCW World Title is on the line, but Hogan's here, so Hogan gets to be the main event. Of course, it is Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage for supremacy of the New World Order. I do want to find uh, this. Uh, did you see the shirt that Hulk Hogan was wearing? I did not. Oh, it, it was. It, I, I didn't really take note of what was on the front, but I did see what was on the back. It's on the back. It says, and I quote, Yay, though I wrestle in the coliseums and the arenas of champions, I fear no one because I know I am the man. <laughs> I was like, I want one of those. Wow. <laughs> Um, Macho Man Randy Savage comes out second accompanied by his uh, I believe now ex-wife Miss Elizabeth Um, Michael Buffer in his intro I thought this was funny uh, like the first thing he says about Macho Man Randy Savage is that he's the spokesperson for Slim Jim (laughs) gotta have that branded (laughs) the most important thing that he has done in his career is be the Slim Jim's guy Um, the lights are like weirdly like like dimmed for the start of this match like they, they start fighting in the ring like they've already rang the bell and they start fighting and the like the ring lights are like still off for a while and i thought that they were i was like are they doing some fucking fiend, fiend shit here <laughs> and then eventually i don't know i guess they must have just messed it up because they uh, or accidentally kept them off or something because they do end up turning them on but at first i was like please don't fucking do this um most of this match is hulk hogan slowly beating up Randy Savage. A um, bunch of slow punching. We get some, uh, you know, both guys are wearing the weight belt. They're doing the weight belt gimmick, uh, which the NWO, I have to say, the NWO were the first guys to do the weight belt gimmick. And then, like, Cody and the Elite, or, like, <laughs> Cody especially stole the weight belt gimmick. And, like, the Bucks did it, too, I guess. They told, they com- that something, another thing, outside of just the two suite that they completely stole from the NWO was the weight belt gimmick. Um we get some weight belt whipping spots. Uh, and then we just end up standing around for a while. Uh, both guys get thrown into the cage. Both guys blade, so they're bleeding now. They end up going out of the door. Um, they open, but there's apparently no escape rule. Because they go out the door, and the match continues, and they just fight outside. They're like the, the referee at the door opens the door for them. But if there's no escape rule, then why open the door? Beats me, David. Because then what's the point of the cage? Don't get it. Um, Yeah, but they're bleeding and they're fighting and they're being slow. Uh, The one cool spot in the match, the only cool spot, is Macho Man does climb to the top of the cage and does his big diving axe handle from off the cage. Does get a good response from the crowd because, at the end of the day, simple rule of wrestling, if someone jumps off a cage, it's probably going to be cool. Um, Hogan kicks out of that. Then 
after about 15 minutes or so of slow punching, here comes a mysterious, large, jacked man wearing an NWO shirt. Uh, they don't know who it is, but because we're watching it later, we know who it is. It is the Disciple, also known as Ed Leslie, also known as Brutus the Barber Beefcake, also known as 50 billion other terrible gimmicks, also <laughs> known as a guy who basically got every single job he ever had because he was Hogan's best friend. This guy is the Disciple, newest member of the NWO. And, you know, he. to be fair... Looks completely unrecognizable. I would not have known that that was Brutus the Barber Beefcake, in you know, if I hadn't been able to look it up on the internet. I have to say, um, he comes down, saves Hogan, takes out the referee. Um, as Savage is like climbing the cage to do something, and then Savage is standing up at the top of uh, at the top of the cage, watching the disciple like take out the referee, and then he's like, and then Savage just goes. Okay, well, I guess I'll climb back down into the ring now. And so he then slowly climbs back down the cage. And then it's like, you know, they, they, they kind of face off and it's two on one. Hogan is starting to come to and they've got the disciple there. So it's the disciple, Hogan standing across from Macho Man Randy Savage. Then all of a sudden, who shows up? But it's Sting, motherfucker. Sting is apparently like right after his match, went straight up to the rafters and does the, you know, descending down on the on the fucking rope gimmick down from the rafters but he, like he does it in kind of a funny way um where it's like he starts descending and the crowd you know obviously the crowd pops big for sting but he comes down and it's like like the people doing it are like really trying to carefully aim it so to make sure he lands inside the cage like he they, he like stops like a couple times on the way down and then they bring him down and then he actually lands on top of the cage for a second and then they're like, ah, shit, we got to get him in there. And then eventually he ends up landing in the ring. And it's like, this is the longest, like, Sting fucking, uh, you know, harness spot of all time. Like, it's taken him, like, a full minute to get all the way down into the ring. And then he lands. And then they're all shocked when he lands. Like, Hogan's reaction to Sting, <laughs> it's like, okay, this, the crowd has been cheering for something for, like, a solid, like, 30 seconds. And like this, this, this thing has, this entrance has taken like a long time. And then Hogan sees him and he's like, Oh my God, it's Sting. I can't believe it. <laughs> it, it just, something. I, it's something about it was incredibly funny to me. Um, and then we have this like Mexican standoff where it is, it, it looks like Sting has come to the aid of Macho Man Randy Savage. It is like Savage and Sting standing across from Hogan and the Disciple. And they stand there and they do nothing. And they do nothing. And they do nothing some more. And then Savage turns on uh, Sting. Which is like, okay, the what was the fucking point? Because like, Sting coming down, you assume like, oh, does this mean like, Macho Man is, uh, is Macho Man siding with Sting against the NWO? Is this a Macho Man babyface turn? And no, that's not what's happening. So, okay, does that mean that the NWO is reunified and Savage and Hogan will stand together? No, that's also not what's happening. Because Macho Man just leaves. He literally just leaves. <laughs> and the match ends. And it's just over. <laughs> we don't get any... We, officially, it is recorded as a no contest. 
16 minutes and 21 seconds. Savage and Hogan are yelling at each other as Savage leaves. And you're sitting there like, wait, so what was this? Why did this happen? Why did any of this happen? Nothing is resolved. All you are left with are more questions as to what the fuck is going on and why does any of this matter? And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. That is how they end on Censored 1998 with just a pure fucking head scratcher, ladies and gentlemen. Mm -hmm. Match that Dave Meltzer gave minus one and a half stars. <laughs> the literal dumbest shit. I th the only rationale I can make is that they wanted us to be asking these questions so when we watch Nitro or whatever that we will tune in because we need to know the answers to these questions. The problem is it does not make any goddamn sense whatever the fuck just happened. It does nothing made sense. Like there is a rationale like up until uh Sting coming down like the match itself sucked. Uh outside them hammering each other with the belts Nothing really happens. They throw each other into the cages. There's a very obvious blade spot by Macho. N nothing really going on. The lighting was weird to start off to, which takes you out of it right away. And then Sting shows up. Sting showing up was a cool moment, even though it is funny how long it takes him to get down there. It's Sting coming from the rafters. Okay, it makes a lot of sense. It's a cool little thing that he does. And him backing Macho Man over Hulk made sense. And then Macho turns. And it makes yeah. it, 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 it like why? What what do we need this for? Like what's macho? Like macho? There's not really a goal with macho in the NWO unless he already knows he has people like backing him in storyline, which we don't know that at this point. Hogan, we know that as a disciple, Hogan is recognized as the head, whatever. And it makes sense for macho if he doesn't agree with Hogan to go at Hogan. It makes sense, but to attack Sting. Who is a potential ally, knowing the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, it defies all logic. It's not a good question. It's a question. It's not a good one. Yeah. Um, eventually, like, the, this, this split between uh, Savage and Hogan will lead to the birth of the NWO Wolfpack, which will get very, very over and have one of the coolest theme songs of all time. And make things ten times more confusing. Yes. But, like, I just, I love, you know, when I'm, when I'm booking a wrestling show, which, of course, I do all the time, uh, when I'm booking a wrestling show, when I, when I think how I want the crowd to respond, when I think of what I want the people who have paid me money to feel at the end of the show, when the night is done, I want them to be fucking confused. That is what I want. I want everyone watching this shit to be like, what the fuck happened and what the fuck did I just watch? That's what I want, people. That, that's what I want. God forbid we have and conclusions. To me, this is some of the best booking of all time. Yeah, I mean, like, all, all it is is, like, at the end of the day, okay, what, what did you learn here? Okay, Hogan and Savage had a dog shit match that took forever. Before then, they were both in the NWO, but they were having tensions with each other. They were kind of competing with one another. That's still true after. Uh, nothing has changed there. But all it has, all this has achieved is to kind of make your champion Sting look like a fucking moron. 
Yep. You know, by going going down and being like, hey, Macho, let's fight together. And then he just gets sass kicked. Like, you were a fool to trust Macho Man Randy Savage. The only thing that this achieves, it doesn't move forward any story. It's a terrible match. The only thing it does is it makes your number one babyface look like an idiot. So, and so begins the long lineage of babyfaces looking like idiots in wrestling booking. Yep. Uh, yep. Not, not to mention as well the flippin' stupid thing of escaping the cage but the match not ending. We should have known something was up at that moment in time because that is stupid, especially a steel cage. Like, in Hell in a Cell, if you're going to leave the Hell in a Cell itself and do some action on the outside, that makes sense because you have the potential to work your way to the top of the Hell in a Cell. But, like, in a steel cage match, when you leave the steel cage, that's the match. The whole point of the steel cage is to keep the competitors in the ring and keep everyone else outside the ring. And the only way to win is pinfall submission or escape the cage. That – th- it makes yeah, no I, sense. I but, I mean, the thing about it, for me, it's, it's, it's not necessarily that. It's the fact that the referee opened the door for that. Like, in, in, in Hell in a Cell matches, yeah, like, absolutely, you know, you will see people um, end up outside of the cell and they end up on top of the cell. But majority of the time, they contrive some way for them to get out of the cell first, right? Either they, like, kick the door in or they, you know, someone makes a run in and, like, cuts the door open or... They get knocked through the side of the fucking you know, cage or whatever. They, they contrive some reason for them. Like, even though, yes, escaping the cage is not a way to win, they contrive some way for them to be able to get out of the ring so they can then go do whatever the fuck it is they're going to do. In a steel cage match, completely fine with a steel cage being uh, just pinfall or submission, no escape rules. Fine with that. It's been done before. I, I have you know, mentioned on this podcast many times that my belief that the ideal steel cage rules are escapes are allowed, but only over the top of the cage. But, um, when you're not having an escape rule, why is the referee then just opening the door for that? Cause that defeats the purpose of there being a cage in the first place. Because if the referee is opening the door because, like, you're allowed to escape out the door and that's a valid way to win. If you've decided that that's, like, one of the rules of the match, then, okay, I think it's stupid, but it makes sense. But if there's no reason for them to want to escape the cage, then why are you opening the fucking door for them? David, we had a new AEW title debut this week, the All-Atlantic Championship. I'm going to give... I still have no idea what the fuck it's supposed to be. <laughs> I am going to give this match a title... The Eat Arby's Award, because nothing matters, eat Arby's. <laughs> yeah. Listen, the All-Atlantic Championship, I have no fucking clue what it's supposed to be, but, it, like, hey, if we're going to get, like, Pac versus Buddy Matthews and shit like that, then by all means, you know, fucking knock yourself out. Have a hundred belts if you want. <laughs> like, this, like, this sucks, man. Fucking, what the fuck? This is just terrible. It's terrible, and none of it makes, it, like, even, even tries to make even remote amounts it's ridiculous it's this is as bad as you can get in my opinion and after a show where we had so much stuff that i enjoyed like really genuinely enjoyed you know much more than i feel like you usually get from a wcw pay-per-view yeah this is such a 
fucking hell of a way to end it. Just complete trash. Ladies and gentlemen, Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Hollywood Hulk Hogan. He's, Hollywood Hulk Hogan has left the building. Okay. Well, fuck. God damn it. Piece of shit. Jesus Christ. Ah, two and, what's our two and a half marks. We're gonna just let's do this. Let's finish this shit, man. I'm fucking. I'm. You're mad now. You're you're very depressed. irritated now. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm depressed now, man. This shit sucks. Half mark. It's gonna go to the title matches: the heavyweight championship, the United States Championship, cruiserweight, world television. All four of those matches were really good. They they were either just very solid technical matches that felt pay-per-view worthy or they were an absolute banger. And that's how you make titles matter is by letting people have good matches for those belts. You let you just have, you take off the restrictions that you normally have for these standard matches. You let them go out there. You let them get their shit in. You let them take their time. And it leads to a bunch of fun moments and a lot of it, it, it raises the prestige of these titles. They make them worth something. Fi- uh, they make them something worth fighting for. So half mark for the title matches and how they handled them. My one mark is going to the crowd turning and reacting to a run in before the wrestler is aware of the run in because that's happened a couple times. Uh, it happened with uh, Sting during the main event where, like, he's dropping down from the crowd, uh, the rafters, and the crowd's, like, pointing up at him and the wrestlers haven't noticed him yet. Uh, it happened with the NWO run-in stuff. Uh, I'll also kind of include Rick Rude running in, hitting uh, Bret Hart, and then the crowd pointing at, like, really genuinely, like, getting involved and pointing at Rick Rude insistently the entire time because that's it's crowd buy-in. That's how, that's how you get the crowd interested. So whenever the crowd is reacting before the wrestler – it's it's a nice little funny spot because it's the one moment you're like, oh, yeah, we're watching a show. He's not supposed to know that so-and-so is coming no matter what the crowd is doing. Uh, and then my negative two marks is whatever the hell the fucking ending of that main event was because I literally have no more words. Eat Arby's. Life is meaningless. We're all going to die one day. Eat Arby's. Um, yeah, I'm going to give my half mark to uh, short hair nasal strip Booker T. One of the better Booker T looks, an underrated Booker T look. The uh, the best Booker T look, of course, was 2000, 2001 Dreads Booker T. Oh, yeah. Like, the, like not the long, like, kind of ponytail type dread thing that he had later on, like the full, like, Dreads kind of hanging down Booker T is the iconic Booker T look to me. But this is a strong Booker T look. And this is also, like, the period where he was at his most, like, jacked, I think. It's a very he was huge. Look. He was fucking ripped. Looking great, Booker. We love we love Booker. This is a pro Booker podcast. Always will be. I'm gonna give my uh, negative one mark to whoever the fuck was in charge of lowering Sting. <laughs> it's like, it just it, talk about just like it takes all the maybe I'm just like making making like too much out of it, but it like takes all the impact out of Sting. Uh, fucking coming like sting making this dramatic entrance in the main event um when it then takes him like like 10 minutes to get down there and they have to stop and start and they have to like fuck around oh no he's on top of the cage ah we gotta get him in there oh no uh yeah it it's just uh (laughs) ruins the whole impact of it and i'm giving my two marks to one of the greatest physical comedians of our time (laughs) just absolute joy to me watching him do what he did you know the 10 minutes he was on screen again you know we are we are legally obligated to to shout out dusty and give dusty marks but uh uh, just a, a man who managed to steal the fucking show every single time he was on the screen 
for even the most minute amount of time, um, in even the smallest possible role, he was going to find some way to like make you remember him. And like, yeah, he was not involved in that match. That was a world title match between two completely different people. And the only thing that I can think about is Dusty. Funky like a monkey. Fucking legend. So that will wrap up our coverage of WCW Uncensored 1998. And that will bring us to our last order of business as I hit the randomizer and find out what we're going to be watching next week on the podcast. As I pull this up, Angelo, what do you want to see? This is weird because normally, like, when we go from one era to another, I'm like, I want something else to kind of mix it up. This was a very unique pay-per-view in terms of, like, there's a little bit of, like, you can see some modern wrestling in here. You see some of the classic wrestling in there. Like, this was a very good, like, summary of what wrestling was outside the main event. So, honestly, I'm pretty good with anything. Uh, I just want to be excited. Oh, wow. That's a, okay. Is that a good oh wow or a bad oh wow? Good wow. Um, you want to talk about excited? We just well, we're staying at WCW. Um, we're staying nineties WCW. We are getting one of the most famous nights Ooh. in the history of wrestling. Ooh, very good. WCW Bash at the Beach, ninety six. Hulk Hogan turning heel. Ooh, formation of the New World Order. The nights that fucking changed wrestling forever. We um, have next week, Bash the Beach 96. That is huge. Who is the third man? We will find out who the third man was. Yeah, Bash at the Beach 96 also has a Rey Mysterio versus Psychosis match on it. And that is going to be fucking fantastic, ladies and gentlemen. But yeah, next week, one of the, I get one of the most famous nights in the history of wrestling, the beginning of, like, one of the greatest angles in the history of pro wrestling, Bash at the Beach 96. Let's fucking go. Hell so, yeah. For my good friend, Angelo Inglisa, my name is David Stafford. Thanks, everybody, for listening.